Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Candace Creaseman Mowry, and this is Beyond Therapy. It only takes us coming together, making just one life better than we found. Today we're going to be talking about the intersection of attachment and racial identity, exploring some of the ways that current models of romantic attachment reflect Eurocentric standards, as well as ways that we can adapt couples' work to be more responsive to BIPOC couples. We are going to be focusing on heterosexual monogamous couples today, but we'll follow up with another episode that takes an intersectional look at queer couples. I am very excited to be joined by Demika Lawrence, who is a licensed clinical social worker in North Carolina. She received her Master's of Social Work through the Advanced Standing Program from North Carolina State University in 2018, and she's worked in community-based and private practice settings with adolescents with severe emotional disturbances, autism spectrum disorder, intellectual and developmental disorders, juveniles, and most recently has added couples and families. Her interest in attachment really began to develop as she kept coming in contact with clients who would present with anxiety or depression, but in time would reveal interpersonal concerns, creating emotional disturbances. From there, she found herself helping clients make sense of their emotions and pushing them to communicate better with their loved ones. She developed a group called Connecting Assertively, but realized while creating the curriculum that there are more complex processes impacting our ability to communicate, quote unquote, assertively. So I am very excited to be talking with you today. Oh, yes. I'm so happy to be here. Well, let's jump jump in. So couples work, I think, for the most part, really centers around attachment. So let's start with attachment. Can you outline some of the basic principles of attachment theory? Oh, the basic principles. That's that's a good question. So I think one of the most, like the basic, the the simple is we all long for attachment. It's a survival instinct. Um, You know, when you think about just different species, us as humans are a little bit more complex, but we are more likely to survive (laughs) when we are connected to someone, right? And so really one of the most basic principles of attachment theory is that we long for connection. It's a survival instinct. And isolation in some way, in in all ways, is inherently traumatic, being mm-hmm. alone. Um, other, you know, when you think about kind of how that expands to just many other different principles, one of them being that when we have safe haven, when we have a connection that feels secure, that we can trust, that is common to our nervous system. And that actually allows us to take more risk. It develops a coherent sense of self. It um, allows us to be a little bit more independent. It's almost like you think about the kind of the bird hatching and, and kind of just preparing to fly. And then they go out on their own. They're able to take that risk and be independent once they've had that secure base, once they know where home is. Right. And so once when we have that, we have the ability to just feel a little bit more confident, empowered, secure, trust. In other words, um, when we are disconnected from those we're attached to, that primes panic, that primes distress, um, that sets us up for every mental and physical <laughs> disorder, really. What else uh, attachment theory kind of proposes is that essentially how we cope, how we strategize, they can develop as styles, right? Uh, but they're really strategies, right? Their behavior, their behaviors are strategies. And so, um, what that has kind of led to is the development of a four attachment styles. So one of them being secure and the other three fearful, other um, otherwise known as disorganized attachment, avoided attachment or anxious attachment. So there's diff- four different styles that kind of, uh, I, I, I like to look at them as not really pathologizing in that way, um, but it does give an idea of how we might operate when we experience distress or when we experience um, connection. I love that you frame the attachment styles as strategies, because I think the way I initially learned it, it just felt so much like a personality situation, right? Like this is just, well, I'm just an anxiously attached person, I guess. 
as opposed to this is how I adapted to a particular environment. So I wonder if you can say a little bit about what kinds of environments produce what kinds of attachment. So, you know, something that I do share um, with clients and my group more specifically is that our childhoods do not have to be like explicitly traumatic, if that makes sense. When you think about these attachment styles and, and kind of the strategies that develop, they're not all, they don't always appear to be the healthiest. They, they're not sort of defined as that, right? We don't consider them in that way. And so I, I do like to just let it be known that just because we might identify or have some resemblance to insecure attachment styles, that that doesn't mean our childhood are, is traumatic or that our relationships are traumatic. Um, I think that's just, that is number one. With that being said, though, um, disorganized attachment or fearful attachment out of the four attachment styles is the one attachment that has been noted a lot more to having childhood trauma and, you know, trauma in relationships, right? So disorganized attachment is kind of a combination of fearful avoidant. Really what disorganized attachment, what that looks like is kind of, like I said, a mix of both of being anxious and also being afraid. And so there is a longing for connection, right? And so there is a moving towards the people that you care about, but then there's also a backing away when they get too close, right? So there is this feeling that our relationships, your world is kind of unsafe. You can't trust it. And so disorganized attachment has typically fostered in traumatic households, childhoods. That is one that is Research has shown that. Um, as far as avoidant or anxious attachment, avoidant attachment really looks like a minimizing of attachment needs. And so um, this really, a lot of times, one of the giveaways that I hear is, I'm so independent. I don't like help. I can do everything myself. I, I love self-sufficiency. Who says that? Right. Um, I would think avoidant a- attachment styles are really primed in environments that focus on action, right? So it's like, what are you doing? Like, let's get up and go. There's this, it's like when you think about people on autopilot, um, I, you know, when you consider it, like I said, not being traumatic, you might think about those who, who work really hard, who is just kind of like goal focused. They may not speak a lot about emotion, right? So it might be an environment where emotion just really isn't talked about, isn't shared, isn't, you know, having, it's just not in conversation. And also there might be a lot of logic or your head. You know, I like to say we're talking out of our heads, what you know, what you should do. A lot just solution focused, in other words. I think that you might find that in the avoided attachment styles. Um, With anxious attachment, these individuals are a lot more aware of their attachment needs. So they are keenly aware and a lot more expressive. And so these individuals are kind of what I think what primes anxious attachment style is caregiving. You know, when you think about um, relationships, you know, just different home circumstances where you might be in some way a caregiver to siblings or, you know, obviously maybe to a parent who who is falling ill, when you have to sort of be hypervigilant, be aware of others' emotional needs, um, being the oldest sibling, (laughs) you know, that creating this kind of um, scanning, this awareness of your environment, of yourself, where you kind of just know people. I think people who resemble anxious attachment, they typically refer to themselves as mind readers. (laughs) Like, I know this is going to happen. I've seen this before, that kind of thing. Um, But really anxious attack, I think, is primed in like caregiving sort of um, circumstances. And once again, not necessarily inherently traumatic. You could just be the oldest. You could, you know, have a parent who falls ill, um, anything of that sort. And secure attachment, what fosters secure attachment is an environment where we can share our distress, talk about our vulnerabilities, our emotions, ask for help. We can set boundaries. Um, We can provide help as well. It's 
we can ask for things and when we our needs are or not our needs, but when um maybe when those needs are not met or when someone is unable to to kind of provide them, there isn't distress that we experience, attachment panic, in other words. The other three attachment styles experience this distress or panic when there's um, an interaction in the relationship, but, you know, maybe a need isn't met there, the strategy changes, right? So when you think about different, the environments that might prime the styles, it's like, well, what strategies are accepted, right? What strategies have been taught? Like for communication as a strategy, right? So what are we talking about? (laughs) And that can change how, you know, really, when you think about attachment, how are we connecting? Just this general principle that, um, attachment strategies don't always have to come from trauma. Um, I find that is such a big roadblock in individual work with folks is just conceptualizing that you don't have to find and name some awful thing that happened to you to work on how you show up in your relationships, because there might not be a thing necessarily that you consider to be like, you know, capital T trauma doesn't mean things didn't happen to shape you kind of a follow-up to um, just how attachment is formed. Another question that shows up for me a lot in working, particularly with women who have had early abusive romantic relationships is this question of like, who can shape your attachment? Is it just your early caregivers? Can it happen all along the lifespan? All along really? You know, I think, well, we, Starting at the beginning, it is our <laughs> it's our parents typically, right? Or in other words, our primary attachment figures, our significant ones. And when you think about growing up, who is that usually? Our parents, right? To your point, though, as we get older, we might experience attachment injuries. Um, so the injury may not come from your parents, although that might be your primary attachment figure, right? And then also when you think about going um, as Going back to the idea as we get older, our primary attachment figures change. So to your point, we might begin relying on our romantic partners, our friends, ourselves, really, you know, but that who we identify as our attachment figures definitely changes as we get older and not the injuries that we experience along the way. They may not always come from our attachment figures. Right. But. It still impacts us. It still may impact our ability to attach and connect or, or trust, in other words. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which sounds like that's super adaptive because if you have to be able to switch your styles and gears depending on who you're in the most connection with. And that is also, I like you bringing up that point because this isn't something, I honestly, I haven't come across too much in research, but. I've been posed with the question and I think it's something that that definitely we can we can see is the relation like basically when trust is different in a relationship right when maybe there is connection with one individual that's not the same with you know maybe with a friend or who who knows but what does that mean about our attachment style you know or what you know how does that what does that really look like? If our connection might be insecure, that doesn't mean our, our our style is. So to your point, when you think about how we adopt things as styles, as personalities, I always tell people you got to be mindful of that, right? Because we have to be willing to evolve, to kind of, you know, not hold on to things, not hold on to labels that sometimes feel safe. And comfortable, and to your point, like oh, it makes sense, and but it still keeps us trapped, <laughs> right? Well, I wonder. Let's maybe shift into um, techniques and approaches a little bit because I think that is such a great foundation that you've given around attachment. Um, so, when it comes to how early attachment expresses in adult relationships, uh, emotionally focused therapy has become this super popular approach. So can you tell us a little bit about what EFT is and how does it integrate attachment theory? What EFT is, is um, obviously it's emotionally focused therapy. It's a modality formed by Sue Johnson. And, and to your point, it's like the gold, 
the gold model in couples therapy. However, it is used and I use it with individuals and families because essentially it aims to change our experiences with difficult emotions and difficult experiences to put it in simple ways, right? Like when you think about how a lot of times just different modalities, or even as we talked about earlier, this idea of communicating assertively. A lot of times people come into couples therapy, oh, we just want to communicate better. Something is happening where we, the communication is breaking down, right? And so <laughs> simply, you know, what, what I would do a few years ago, or, or what I think a lot of us will just kind of jump in and do is let's talk about communication skills, right? Let's, let's go in our heads and think about the solution. And so what happened when you, you know, when you try to employ these communication skills with couples, and I've also done it with individuals and families, is how, how does the, the person experience the interaction, what they're saying, that completely changes how they engage, respond in, in, what's in, the, in, the, um, in the interaction. In other words, we can tell people, yeah, you know, you should take a time out or don't use you state. I mean, you statements, we say all these communication skills, but when your nervous system is activated, when you are in distress, that part of your brain is not working, right? You can't access that higher level of cognition. And so what EFT goes in and starts to kind of work and explore is what's happening to you while you're experiencing this while you're saying this. And that provides us an opportunity to correct or change how we are experiencing the interaction, the emotion, whatever it is that's happening, right? There's a corrective process that we're trying to kind of work through and bring the person aware of. Because a lot of times we just stay in our heads. But when you think, how do we really put it together? Like, how do we communicate assertively and and do all of these skills. We can't do it when we're distressed. So we have to get couples, people to a space in their relationship where there's a sense of safety, a sense of, hey, I can be vulnerable. I'm okay to show this distress to you and teaching the person, you know, how you respond to that. So then you can move on to conflict resolution and all that jazz. That sounds so incredibly validating. And also I'm just thinking about how the focus on skill building without that regulation piece, just how uh, demoralizing it can be for clients, right? Because they could probably, a lot of clients can tell you right back, you know, exactly what skill they're supposed to use, how they're supposed to use it all, you know, they can verbalize it all and then they get in the moment and they can't access it. And that I think then naturally feels like a personal failure. So to normalize, yeah, of course you can't remember to count to 10 and then use an I statement and, you know, go through this long list of skills when you're super activated. I mean, you literally just said it, but when you consider what we're trying to expect people, what we want people to do is be able to receive and accept information right? That might be distressing, but however it is to be able to receive and accept information, maintain their arousal while doing so, while taking in all of the different stimuli, right? Because there is a process, the neuroception, where your body is taking all this information in for you, making all of these observations. And so you don't really have to. So not only are you trying to maintain your arousal while taking these observations, take in information, but also respond with compassion and assertiveness. That's, that's a lot. I read forever ago, Hold Me Tight by Sue Johnson. And so that is my reference point for EFT. That is the extent of my knowledge. Um, and I remember there were all of these like kind of silly names for different sort of engagements, like there were like the devil's dance or something was in there. I don't, can you say a little bit about some of the patterns of relating that grew up in EFT? And I think you'll, you will find these in different relationships because they, they kind of relate to attachment styles. But I mean, one of the most simple ones is the tack attack, right? So <laughs> that is a pattern that shows up where both of our 
nervous systems are activated, right? We're both on the defense. And so we're we're really preserving ourselves. When you think about aggressive communication, or um, I've, I've come to replace the word selfish with try self-preservation, because that's some, it's it really what it is. Like I am preserving myself. I am defending myself. I'm protecting myself. And so there are, you come across couples, families too. Let me just say, and when we, you know, we're talking about couples, but it really expounds. Um, beyond that, right, um, where there's attack, attack. So both on the defense, both trying to preserve self. Then we come across withdraw, withdraw, you know, not really sharing, not really open about emotions who, you know, we might go into isolation when we are kind of feeling down, like we go to ourselves, go to our own corners. I think of that withdraw, withdraw. And then there is withdraw, pursue, which is, um, the most common. Um, and what that looks like, there's someone who goes into their corner because they kind of isolate as their strategy when it comes to distress. And then there's an individual who pursues. And when they are in distress, they seek that attachment, right? And this can, uh, when you think about really what shows up in couples therapy the most, is that whole pursue withdrawal. There is limited and none, I guess, no substantial research that says gender differences when it comes to these relationship patterns. Although we could probably generalize and stereotype. I have a lot of feelings about that. The word clean is coming to mind. We know, we know. Um, but yeah, so there's pursue withdrawal, 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 and then attack, attack. Okay, so we know a little bit about attachment. We have a foundation for EFT. So let's switch gears into sort of how all of this shows up when working with Black African-American clients and couples and families. So the ongoing criticism uh, of Western psychological theories is that they're Eurocentric, right? Um, So if, and there are layers to this, right? Because it's not just a, there's the racial piece, but then there's also the heteronormative piece, the cisgender piece. So if we're, assuming that white middle-class heteronorms are sort of centered in EFT, what sort of assumptions are being made about what healthy attachment is supposed to look like? So I guess the difference is like, is there potentially a difference between white middle-class hetero attachment and black African-American attachment, knowing that it's not a monolith, but Are there differences that we're ignoring? I think what may not be different is the sort of how the styles have been kind of defined. I think getting to and understanding how a person's style, habits, strategies have formed is where we get a little murky. So, for example, um, first, to your point, what healthy attachment looks like, something that I've come across and what, you know, what's just what what we find in African-American culture is a lot of times, some African-American families have multiple caregivers. So going back to that idea of, you know, who are primary attachment figures, in some families, there's mom, there's dad, but then there's grandma, there's aunts, right? So this idea of how healthy attachment is, how was it, how was it formed, and if it's with one person, kind of proposes, it doesn't speak much about having multiple caregivers. The three basic qualities of a secure bond is accessibility, responsiveness, and emotional engagement. And so, and this is obviously, there's no research, but if we have multiple caregivers, I think the, the biggest thing that comes into question is like accessibility. In other words, what with the qualities of the bond and what defines that with that change in regards to African-American families or Black families. Mm. Um, And also when you think about the attachment styles, just one loophole that has really been talked about is avoiding an attachment style versus a survival mask. So when you think about an avoidant attachment style, right, it's withdrawn, it's minimizing of your needs, not talking about your emotions, very sharp, in other words, right? Like a survival mask, when you think about these populations, it's not safe for them to always use assertive communication. 
right? It's not always safe for them to share vulnerabilities and distress. And so what might appear as an avoided attachment style, we have to ask, is that actually, a, is it a survival mask? If the purpose of this, this, that behavior, the strategy is, yeah, it might be different, but it, it still implies that a person might have to minimize their emotional needs, their attachment needs, you know, minimize their thoughts and feelings out of fear, right? Out of mm-hmm. fear that of some punishment, of some kind of reaction. You know, how can they move away from these things if it's, if it really is useful? Right. Yeah. I mean, that feels like such an important distinction to make, too, is that to say that someone's behavior, withdrawn behavior is a function only of their avoidant attachment, but to ignore the systemic cultural pieces. For one, it's maybe putting the blame in the wrong place because maybe they had very secure attachments. Um, but had to adapt to other environmental pieces. Um, and it, I think it also, it seems like it would shift the approach, right? Because like you're saying, if if it actually has helped with survival and is maybe still necessary, then it doesn't seem like it's actually a helpful intervention to try to get someone to abandon those strategies. Right, right, exactly. And so then I think that's where um, what EFT has started to kind of, I mean, what they just kind of make plain is we talk about these vulnerabilities, right? And with African-American couples, Black couples, I mean, and I honestly go beyond just any individual part of a minority population, right? Talk to me about what you what vulnerability looks like to you and how you define that. Because when you think about getting into EFT or where we're trying to take them to a space where they can use vulnerability, where they're sharing distress without fear, helping people really understand and first seeing where they are before you're trying to change their minds, you know, not in the business of changing minds, right? But trying to help them bring awareness of what vulnerability is and in if we are really look, and when I tell people, if you're looking towards mastering it, in other words, not being afraid of it, we have to approach it. Mm. So, you know, in those communities, when you think about, you know, vulnerability, we just can't do it, right? It's just not, it's something that they have, we've been taught, you don't share, right? You don't, you don't show these vulnerabilities. Well, you feel vulnerable when, as Brene Brown has taught us, when you experience uncertainty. And so we go in and talk about first just trying to order how they make sense of these emotions, how they define them, because it's like vulnerability is something if we can begin to detach it from ourselves, it comes up when you experience uncertainty, when you experience a little bit of anxiety, then how that that kind of gives us an opportunity to then begin regulating it. Let's say you're working with an African-American couple. Both of them have this deeply entrenched cellular understanding or knowing that vulnerability is dangerous. How in the world do you even begin to break that down with someone? I always consider this, this kind of work or helping people recognize when you think about trying to move towards secure attachment, move towards this idea of, you know, using vulnerability it's like going to the edge of a cliff each time, <laughs> right? Like it's going to push you. It is pushing you to, out of your comfort zone each and every time. So to your point, when you think about that couple being aware on a cellular level that, okay, something is happening to me. First, are they, are they willing, do they feel able to kind of walk into that for themselves? probably going into some individual counseling for trauma work and allowing themselves that opportunity and pushing them to begin to look and experience and correct their, you know, change their experience with their trauma. That couple would have to probably come to some point in awareness where they recognize, okay, how I experience my trauma is impacting my ability to connect with you. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's like before we even get to the chair with both of them. Right. What's the walk they've taken by themselves? What you're hoping to do in couples work is bring people, families, anyone 
to a place where they can share these vulnerabilities, go to that edge, know that the, their loved one is going to kind of catch them though. When you think about trying to get them to kind of go to the edge, people who sometimes have experienced traumas, no worry, they're not even on the cliff. Right. Yeah. Too risky. Yeah. Too risky. <laughs> it brings to mind, um, I do a lot of mindfulness work with clients and especially for folks who are, who are new to it, inevitably when I'm saying, you know, can you feel that in your body? Can you name the sensation? Can you be with it? They're like, yeah, but why? <laughs> It's real uncomfortable. And the best kind of answer I can come up with is that when we look at things rather than get swallowed by things, we change those experiences. And so it sounds like there's really potentially for folks who have ongoing racial trauma, maybe some extra work that would need to go into cultivating buy-in around vulnerability. It sounds like having them sort of name, you know, what do you want from this relationship and identifying are any of those accessible if you can't be vulnerable? Yeah. 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 I've had a client, um, once I've started doing EFT and I didn't kind of warn them, like I didn't tell anybody I was doing this training, right? I feel like my approach has kind of changed. And not, you know, I just started slowing down a lot more. I've had some feedback and saying like, that was a lot. Well, like you're not really supposed to be able to regulate that, right? Because that's like a threat to this critical aspect of your life. Uh-huh. Right, right, right. But I guess when you think about, to your point, regulate, not allow it to become overwhelming. If we're talking about... um one of the primary missing pieces in the research, aside from just the representation, not just the bodily representation in research, but the sort of cultural, philosophical, values-based representation in research. Um, another big piece that's missing is the impact of racial trauma and ongoing stressors related to racism. And in this, I love this article that you shared by Nightingale and colleagues. It was a uh, Emotionally Focused Therapy, A Culturally Sensitive Approach for African-American Heterosexual Couples. Uh, and they talked about the negative impacts of chronic racism on mental and physical health. How have you personally seen racism manifest within couples? What does it do to the dynamic? Oh, that is a, a great question. Um, it changes what sometimes kind of what they expect from each other. And let me see, I don't know if that is the correct word. Uh, I guess I'm going to talk myself through it. Um, because to your point, when we when you go out and, you know, racism by discrimination, like that's a lot of part, that's a part of your experience outside of your home, right? And so much of it. And it is happening in kind of unsafe territory, right? And so then when you think about coming to your relationship, coming back to these connections, and a lot of times, what if that is like, to your point, what if that is a, a relationship we do feel a little bit safer in, where we do feel some ability to release, rather than it become sometimes it becoming conversations of maybe venting to each other and almost like um, commiserating, <laughs> if, that, if that, you know about yeah. what's happening, it becomes this like. I, don't, I think we don't maybe recognize the true implications of, of the, the bias or discrimination. For, so, for example, like if we don't acknowledge that there is workplace discrimination or for African-American males, um, yet African-American females are like the most high, the most educated social group right now. And not only that, but there's also mass incarceration. Right. So we have like what? A million of African American, two million, like locked away, not able to, you know, sort of exploit any of these resources. So, in other words, how does that start to change the expectations of each other? Do they catch up? Um, there was something in the article that I came across where it was like, when we adopt African Americans' Eurocentric kind of standards and expectations of relationships, we are actually a lot more likely to experience conflict. Right. Because of these different things. So when you think about the whole Eurocentric traditional um, a value of family and marriage is the man is the breadwinner 
and the mother is the stay-at-home nurturer caregiver, right? And that is kind of the roles that they play. Well, when you think about African-Americans historically, um, African-American women have never not worked. You know, like going back to like really slavery before they've never not worked. And so the idea of kind of adopting this nurturing or stay at home emotional caregiver, really, that's what -hmm. we're talking about, being the emotional caregiver of the family. But they are workers, too. Right. They actually a lot of time when you think about going back to the education growth, what we're finding is a lot of the African-American women are breadwinners in their families. So compound that with also the experience of the black male, right? So there's mass incarceration, there's police brutality, there is, as we mentioned before, uh, workplace discrimination, there's challenges, the ability to really be this breadwinner, to be um, economically stable. One thing, that we're that you see in research is that the more educated you are, the more likely you are able to exploit resources available, right? And so, what this proposes is that there is a little bit more African American women are able to exploit resources due to their education that African American men are not. And what you know, not really fully acknowledging these challenges on the African-American race, right? If we kind of, if we acknowledge them as personal personal um, battles or if, if, if what I find a little bit, for me personally, if I don't recognize and say, okay, Mika, it's not likely that you're going to find an African-American male in your, um, in your financial, in your financial, what's the word I'm looking for? Your SES? Yes, yes. I'm like, it's just, yes. You're not, you know, that is not as likely. And so in other words, if I go around dating, looking for a man who makes more money than I do, and and making that a sole standard of mine, that they are the primary breadwinner, and that at some time I'll be able to go and retire and jump ship within a year, that's not very, it's not very likely, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So in other words, we have to change the expectations that we have for our partners when seeking them and actually in relationship with them. Right. That that kind of includes elements out of their control Mm. that they have to then respond and strategize to. But, you know, when you think about getting in the relationships, if you don't acknowledge these outside forces, it becomes blame of the other person. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm imagining this in a couple where the man comes in feeling inadequate. Mm -hmm. The woman comes in feeling overburdened, like she's having to do everything and is not getting her emotional needs met. Right. And having significant pieces of that, just as Mm -hmm. you did, completely out of their control. Yeah, completely. Yes, absolutely. And then when you compound just the different I don't know, cultural and just different just factors. Like when you think about going to this idea of men feeling inadequate, well, it goes back to the they're expected to perform, right? <laughs> and so like there's, and that I wonder if that kind of primes that avoided attachment. Mm. When you think about, we don't care how you feel, right? <laughs> or not even that, oh, you're tired, you're sick, you're this, you're that, but you're still the breadwinner. You are still the provider. And so by nature, right, you have, we have to sort of assume at some point there'll be a minimizing of your emotional and attachment needs. If you are expected to deliver, if you are expected to work so much harder to deliver. Yes. Yes. Perform. Right. Right. And then what they're not talking about, right. Cause they're probably not aware of how I'm feeling. not have feeling the permission to even share it. But that role in the family where they are, it's not maybe common for us to ask. But then, you know, on the flip side of that, being that overburdened, right? And then we find the the arguments then become, to your point, the male is feeling inadequate and then they disengage, they isolate. And the woman is, you know, is kind of like, to your point, 
aware of what they need, verbal with what they need, you know, expressive of that. And it becomes like feeling also a feeling of abandonment, right? Because I'm reaching, I'm showing, I'm bidding for a connection. And that's not, that's also not being met. I mean, we can't negate when we don't feel heard, when we don't feel seen, that causes attachment panic, right? So that isolation, that disengagement then triggers an attachment threat. Well, this sounds like a really intimidating and vicious cycle. <laughs> I'm glad I don't do this work. Right, right. Yeah, I told people, you know, it's like really being a dance instructor, like come in and interrupt it. I'm a disruptor. I am. I disrupt, right? Well, in thinking about how some of the sort of social environment, how mm-hmm. the social environment can cultivate these different role expectations, this kind of yeah. some of different dynamics um, within a couple. Um, there was something that was, I'll just read it. It was on, it was in that same article that we've been talking about. And it just struck me as something that was just so different from what I would yeah. do uh, that it just, just grabbed me immediately. Okay. So yeah. in this part of the article, the authors were talking about, um, uh, approaching uh, an African-American woman who was presenting with her partner, husband, um, I think husband. Um, and so at some point the woman starts to cry. And so the author says in traditional EFT treatment, I might've asked about the tears and lightly explored her primary emotions of hurt and sadness as part of the assessment process. However, as a culturally sensitive therapist, I'm mindful that quote unquote, emotional black women are unfairly judged as crazy or weak. And I run the risk of putting Janae, the woman, on the defensive if I ask about what prompted her to cry before she trusts me. Yeah. That just hit me like a ton of bricks because I'd go in there with my white self, like, tell me about those tears. You know, (laughs) that is right where I would go. So I wonder if you can, if can you identify other sort of strategies, tactical approaches that, you have adapted in working with African-American couples. That is very tricky. You know, I, (laughs) and even as a black woman, you know, or what is challenging as an EFT therapist, because we're taught to slow down, right? We're taught to bring it up, to bring it in the room, right? To kind of get them talking about it and processing it. If we allow that to continue, do we run the risk of the woman not feeling heard, right? They're literally crying and we continue on with the conversation, like if we're how we're continuing it. So to say, you know, when you think about these interventions, I think it's just they they start to look a little gray because there's this line of remaining human. Right. We don't want to perpetuate this kind of autopilot mode that avoidant attachments or even when you think about we're strong, you know, the whole Black girl, Matt, like, you know, you don't want to prime that in a way that is traumatic or like toxic positivity, mm-hmm. right? In other words, that if someone, to your point, if they're crying, if they're, you know, if they're bawling, we don't want to, like, we just don't want to just continue as if that's not happening, yeah. right? So then I think to your point, we start to like, kind of like tread how we bring these things in the room. Part of that is building trust. And so if we kind of keep that as our main goal, building trust, building rapport, what is going to make a person feel seen or heard, right? Mm-hmm. So in other words, um, I grab tissue. <laughs> yeah, great little ground. Like I'm acknowledging this. Yes, I'm acknowledging this. And it's like you, I think I, I think of myself as kind of like walking beside mm-hmm. someone. Right. And so when you think about you don't want to get you may not want to kind of view it as, okay trying to get them to this point of understanding their tears or trying to get them to talk about it. Emotion like, you know, you don't want to sort of make it a part of the cycle at this point, but you do want to stay with her where she is. Yeah. Right. It's like we're so in other words, we may not talk about it as, you know, well, I see you're crying. You know, can you tell me? you know, or, or what they mean or what's happening, what's causing the tear. We may not kind of start off that deep, (laughs) right? 
But, you know, a tissue, you know, you know, do you, you need a moment, you know, or, you know, you might just say what's happening for you. Not bringing up the tears, right? Like not bringing up the the fact that it's, oh, you're crying and this is evoking a response from me. But it's like, I see you. That's such a great point, you know, and it's interesting because I'm always conflicted about the tissue offer because do I offer the tissues as an act of validation or will the tissues be perceived as an act of like, suck it up, let's just drop, you know, turn off the water. <laughs> so I'm always a little like eh, 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 tissues. No, yes. <laughs> so then I think there's that also like the verbal reminders of like, you know, take your time. I think really move it in in a way that we're we're having a dialogue. Like we're not so focused on trying to get them to a space where they're comfortable with vulnerability. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, like not rushing them there. Yeah. Walking beside where they are with it, you know, yeah. and it basically it may not even be a time to where we talk about the vulnerabilities of what's happening. There might be a, a conversation of later. I've actually kind of introduced it in that way, you know, as where, once again, where I'm trying to take you in couples therapy, I identify as my approach, right? So first of all, you have a choice. <laughs> like, you know, you have a choice on and how you see walking through this journey, right? And so in other words, I let it be known that I value and work with emotions. I propose, and I believe, I propose, this is my theory, that emotion and how we experience it, how we experience it in relationships, how we experience it with ourselves and begin to have these corrective um, experiences with them, that changes. That has the capacity to change how we connect, how we communicate. I'm not saying it changes everything, but that is like the starting foundation. We have to be able to have a working relationship with emotion, a collaborative one. I love that. And I think that's something that I can fairly easily forget to do is just mm-hmm. reminding us the importance of orienting people to our approach. Yeah. You know, it's not yeah. assuming that people know what to expect when they come and sit down on the couch because right. they may have been in therapy before, but they haven't been in therapy with you. Yeah. Uh, and to that point, we really can run the risk, not of necessarily like re-trauma. Well, yeah, that can happen. Like we can re-traumatize, but in some, in, in I guess in a, a, a small way, when you think about how I, I like, I've had a session where I'm like, you know, I can kind of acknowledge that a person is having a hard time. Like their heart rate was kind of, you know, they were just kind of getting a little antsy. I just, without really a warning, I was trying to get them to be in their body Mm. and breathe. And, you know, all you got to do is Google breathing. Breathing is promoted everywhere. Like, oh, yeah, just breathe in, diaphragmatic breathing, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like even I think I promoted it in my group one time because, I mean, that's what the research. And that is true. Deep breathing is the quickest way to kind of deactivate your nervous system. However, breathing and being in your body is not always a comfortable place for people. It's not always safe, right? And so without really having a conversation about what's happening and where we're going, I think that's where you start to you start to experience resistance that is is a little bit more, you know, there's some resistance you can expect. You know, I can work with you on that. But there are some people like I have um um, work. I was working with a, a woman, um, older, right? And they're like, like I, this is my strategy, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> it broke, don't fix it. I've also had, you know, a client kind of call me out, like, well, in in a healthy way, but it was like something about you is different, and, and it was a good conversation to have because they were like, is this your authentic professional approach, or are you like pacifying me? Because I slowed down, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and I don't, I'm like, you know, I'm not, I'm moving them out of their head and not just talking about it. First of all, I appreciate that question because it was so on the nail. I had kind of just finished the training. <laughs> I had just finished the training and it was so hot. And so I'm like, you know, well, to your point, I actually have taken a, a training and I recognize 
yeah, I need to slow this down a little bit. So I, w- I validated a lot of what he was saying because he wasn't, he was not wrong in his observation in that way. Now his, and what he started to interpret, he was like, you know, because are you passive? Is this an authentic professional approach? Like, or are you almost like trying, are you doing like mommy caregiving? <laughs> and so that began a conversation of, of what does emotional engagement really look like and yeah. how we interpret it, right? Because for him, it felt pacified and like, what, no, what are you doing? Why? No, don't, no, why are you doing this? Like, <laughs> and it was uncomfortable. You know, what would it be like if that's what our what we experience in our relationship? Yeah, like what feels problematic about me trying to deeply engage with you right now? Yes, yes, yeah. to your yes, of me seeing the emotion that you're not talking about. Yeah. Which I love that you didn't just go straight to why do you ask? You know, the like the cop out, turn it back on the client response. Like I mean, that feels like such a great example of how important the therapist's vulnerability is in in sort of doing some emotionally corrective work with folks going into these conversations there is this almost like this humility that you just kind of like you just put out there like even in conversation as we're talking like I'm like help me understand you know clarify for me this is what it seems like but you tell me you know that idea that I don't know because I'm also trying to build trust and a safe haven to do this work with the client. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So to your point, if I was to just kind of brush it off, not acknowledge it, not go in there with them, then that's a missed opportunity. I super connect with that piece, um, especially around like internal family systems. That's I'm a very, very much a beginner in that world, but have the same feeling of like, wow, I could have done a lot better work if I'd have known this sooner. <laughs> um, I also super connect with, I just finished this training. And so everybody's going to get it on, on an 11. <laughs> on an 11, on an 11. And it's kind of difficult, I think, to kind of create discernment of when not to, because in other words, I've had clients where they're just like, I just want to talk. Like, I don't want to get that deep today. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to get too deep. Where I'm now trying to dedicate my work to is we long for connection, emotional engagement, but maybe we are lived in a world where first we're not primed to just be, you know, to be mindful. We're primed to be kind of restless and to be on the go, to be on autopilot, in other words. And so, Wanting this emotional connection when maybe our environment does not prime us for it, doesn't set us up for it. Or even when you think about it, as I tell clients a lot of times as we start doing this work, you know, as you move towards this more secure attachment style, that doesn't mean the people you're in a relationship with will have one. How do we engage when we now have this awareness of attachment of our own attachment of our own strategies but maybe the person we're in a relationship they have no awareness right mm-hmm. <laughs> like, so that that would imply that the relationship challenges although they look different they're still there they're still there and so i found that a lot of times start referring people out to like once you've done individual work to family or couples therapy it's like there's only so much you you start to feel like you can do when you're still in relationship with people, right, who might still have these challenges. Mm-hmm. I'm connecting too with, you know, when someone, I'll, I kind of frame it as like they level up, right? They have some sort of deep realization of where their attachment style comes from and they open up some new level of vulnerability and then they're still in the same relationship. Is there's like this, disappointment, maybe it's even grief, you know, maybe it's doubt about the future of the relationship is, you know, if if I now know kind of what I need and I know how to get it, you know, how do I stay in this relationship? And you know what's interesting, I, I appreciate you use the word grief because I've I've found um 
and even for myself, right? To I think I realized like, man, am I feeling like I'm in constant grief? Mm-hmm. You know, like, well, first in relationships, to your point, we can move towards this honest conversation of of telling people, okay, this is what I need. This is, you know, like almost like I think I forgot how you worded it, but being in relationship with individuals who still are maybe having these insecure attachments or, you know, however it might look. I think there comes a point where we start to either we like kind of set the limit, the expectation, or we're going to disengage naturally. And so to prevent that from happening, right? Like it's almost, how can I say it? I think sometimes there is like this, this moment where we are left to with grief, right? Because even after we set our expectation, the person that we're setting it to, they may not be willing or they may not be capable. So, you know, even when we think about going back to secure attachment or yes, you can communicate assertively and yes, you can work through all the anxiety that you felt while communicating that. And you might feel proud of yourself after you've done that. But now we're in relate, we're coexisting with someone who is having an experience of their own. Right. And so sometimes what if they're just not willing? You know, I think that's a little bit easier to accept. So when it says, no, I can't do that, you know, no, I'm able to do that, blah, blah, blah. But what about if those individuals are at the moment incapable? If now I have become aware of my attachment style and I might get the feeling that my partner is more so avoided. Well, then we might recognize they have a a difficult time or maybe not even the ability, right? The awareness to talk about their emotions and thoughts. So we might begin framing questions that move them out of their head, right? Out of what seems like a solution, what makes sense, what's logical, and asking them about their specific feelings, what's happening for them. And I tell people, don't be surprised if you get, I don't know. (laughs) What does that, like, how do we then interrupt, change these relationships? Like, what, what does it look like then after we are aware, right? Last question, and I'm going to get in your business with it. If you could offer your younger self any sort of wisdom, resource, especially when it comes to like relationships and attachment, like what would you go back and offer your younger self? That is a difficult question (laughs) because... My history of relationships is just very interesting. Um, I did not have friends, I will say, until like maybe I felt like the sixth, seventh grade middle school, like actively isolated, um, kind of bullied in that kind of way. I would. So basically, I was a very lonely child, you know, when I think back on it, very isolated when I and I was thinking about this not too long ago. I don't really remember who I spoke to, mm. right? Like my mother, um, she was a single parent and my brother is autistic. So I've, I've always had a, um, my mother has always worked a lot, you know, and so there wasn't a lot of emotional engagement in our relationship until I was much older. And because my, obviously my brother is autistic, there was not a lot of engagement there. So I really like would think about, well, who did you speak to? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and I don't remember speaking a lot. So with that being said, um, when I actually got my first little introduction of friends in middle school, I would find myself what we now see is like exhibiting selective mutism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the way they viewed that was like, oh, she's moody. Something's like uh, mood swings. I would yeah, like. Yeah, I was told that I had such severe mood swings. But really what was happening, I I could not speak. It was anxiety provoking so much. So I would go to the bathroom and I actually found myself doing this in my adulthood a few years ago, going to the bathroom when I'm in social groups to get away. I did not know mm-hmm. what was happening. <laughs> I honestly, I think um, I started working in like... Um, abuser treatment groups. And we talked a lot about like styles of communication. So then I started to realize, oh, okay, well, I'm not assertive. I'm passive. I'm this, you know, like realizing that my communication 
was not clear. What I found, what I started becoming was like a people pleaser, mm. right? Like a fodder, which is a stress response. One of the four, conflict diffusion. And so I went from having absolutely no friends until, you know, I guess got in middle school, high school and college. And I had like a boatload mm. and did not feel connected though. Still felt Still lonely. Yeah. You know, like, it was all, it was just kind of very surface level. And really, I, I just kind of found myself like, so you have all of these, I, I, I used to tell myself, and this was kind of a giveaway, that I'm a friend to all of these people, no one's a friend to me, or what I would kind of identify and what I thought was use, useful at a young, much younger age was, well, if I continue to do all of these things from people, if I'm just almost, if I'm always a great friend, when I decide to leave, there won't be an issue. So in other words, I'm like, I'm going to be a great friend now, almost anticipating at some point I'm going to disengage from this relationship. Don't know why, right? Nothing probably is happening. Mm-hmm, <laughs> Let me just mm-hmm. say, I have probably awesome friends and not too much conflict. I will say that. Hi, friends. But, you know, it's there at some point when I was younger, it was like this idea of leverage, right? If I just have so much like leverage when I leave or when I decide that, you know, I'm going to disengage, I'm not going to be that bad of a friend. Mm, so you wanted to be perceived as the good friend. Yes, yes, yes. But it wasn't actually a nourishing way of being in relationship. No, it wasn't. And I was actually, I was always put on like a pedestal, right? Oh, like, wow. you know, and my, you know, my friends was, well, they will tell you too, right? Like they, they would, all of my friends, um, because I've kept friends from elementary. Um, turns out I did have one, my longest friend, fifth grade, because I also, let me just say, it wasn't until maybe last year, a couple years ago where I'm like, I didn't recognize people as friends, close relationship until like a ridiculous amount of time after. Claire, I don't think I recognized that the person viewed me as a friend. Uh-huh. Like, I don't think I would recognize that because I wouldn't really be looking to attach or connect. I wouldn't recognize when other people were attached to me. Yeah. So I would not value the relationship or really myself in the relationship. Right. And I think at some point that began to um, create this idea to some of my loved ones of first, there's like, Oh, you know, we, we do love, like, you know, we do love you. You are a friend. (laughs) We are friends. (laughs) And so I'm saying all this to say, I mean, even in my relationships too, like there's just this kind of like, I don't think because I have a challenge with connecting, I don't recognize when others are connecting or would connect or attach to me, minimize then their attachment needs, right? Because I kind of wouldn't see them. What a powerful insight. But, you know, and even now when I think about it to myself, right? Because I have a friend and she'll correct me and she'll be like, I know you don't need it, right? Or I know you don't need company. Or, I know you don't, you're not want, but I want you. Like I'm longing oh, wow. for you. And that is that, but that completely changes the way that I hear it, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you, if I hear it kind of as a question or do you need something? Whenever I hear that, it's, no, I don't need it. <laughs> mm-hmm. you, so I have a, uh, uh, one of my best friends. They're very particular about the way that they word things to me because they know how my brain works. I'm paying attention to like the semantics, right? So if you ask me, do do you want me to do something? Yeah, you then you'll get an answer. You'll get an answer, right? Because it's the way that you hear the way that I hear need, right? And so um, your question was, what would I tell my younger self? And I got on a complete tangent because I I recognize here older, um, just I feel like a light bulb has come on. And I don't, I don't know what I would tell myself when I was younger, because I don't know if I was the person who needed to tell my, tell it to me, mm, if that makes sense, mm-hmm, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm, I was always talking to myself. I'm always with myself. Yeah. I don't think there was a lot of conversation with people outside of me. Yeah. You needed, you needed to hear from the people who were in your circle. Absolutely. I needed to hear from, yeah, people in my circle. I, I, like I said, I didn't really have a circle. <laughs> 
I love that you're mentioning that piece. I was talking with a client earlier and it resonated, I think, a little too deeply, but how um, I think a lot of times we associate caregiving with anxious attachment, but I think caregiving can show up with avoidant too. You know, it's like, it's like performative connection. It's, I know I want to be good to the people that are around me, but I have no mechanism for receiving their love and kindness. So I just give and give and that's it. That's it. That's it. To your point, no, no mechanism of receiving it, always giving, right? Until it becomes overwhelming, right? And then it's like this idea of isolating ourselves or disengaging because we didn't communicate ahead of time. I found that to be kind of my go-to in romantic relationships, you know, experiencing or maybe not really being aware, honestly, when I would be bothered by something, when I would kind of have a challenge, when an emotional meat wasn't being met. And so, I mean, this is literally, <laughs> uh, <laughs> high school, college, and adult. <laughs> um, this pattern of disengaging and the other person is completely like blinded. Mm-hmm. Right. So they're like, what happened? You know what? And I'm just like so minimal of this just isn't working. And but, you know, when I think back on it, it's like, oh, wow, there was a lot of needs you weren't communicating, a lot of, you know, concerns that I was not talking about. Yeah. Wasn't aware of them always. Um, Yeah. Mm. Well, Lamika, I just so appreciate your openness. And I mean, I think it just means so much more to hear the personal experiences, not just of how you show up in the therapy room, but like how you show up in the world as a person um, to help us understand these ideas. So I just so appreciate your time. And yeah, thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, it is something I definitely love to talk about, process of attachment and what it looks like. So I've, I've enjoyed talking about it. That is our show for today, folks. I'd love your feedback, questions, or comments. So follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Beyond Therapy Podcast and let us know what you think. Until next time, this is Dr. Candace Creaseman Mowry signing off. Beyond Therapy is brought to you by Creaseman Counseling, mental wellness for all. Visit www.creaseman-counseling.com for more information. Thanks for listening.